Welcome back to the Rebel Alliance Media Podcast. Chris and Nate are coming at you once again in the studio back in Garage Mahal. And uh, we got uh, a really exciting episode for you today. Really exciting. What do you think of our guest today, Chris? I love it. I, I'm i very excited. Like when we, when we found out this was going to happen, I was busting. So I'm quite excited. I'm going to let you introduce it though. Just yeah, I, and I will in just a second. Before we do that, uh, I just want to uh, kind of get through some business here. If this is the first episode that you're listening to, we hope it's episode number 34 that you're listening to. But uh, if you're listening to the Rebels for the first time, uh, we just want to let you know where you can find out more. Uh, come and find us on Facebook. Uh, on Facebook, uh, you'll see that we release videos every Friday and we uh, release a podcast either on there or if you prefer to listen to the podcast on your favorite podcast catcher on iTunes, uh, episodes come out every single Wednesday. Uh, we are proud members of the Berean Media Network. It's a network of several different podcasts, including our friends, The Layman's Cup and The Front Pew Podcast, which both come out on Mondays, as well as The Two Thieves, who we'll talk about a little bit today. Um, that come out on Thursdays and then there's us coming in on Wednesdays and the Brian Media Network is a group of podcasts just push each other's content because there you will find good sound theology uh, and we all kind of hit a different niche but if you want to find out more go to BereanMediaNetwork.com and if you want to help out the Rebels if you are a regular listener we'd love for you to help us out and one of the ways you can do that is just head over to the Facebook page like it Uh, Find some of the old videos, like those, share those, get the content in front of your contacts, and that just helps us grow. So thanks so much for that and to all of our listeners. And we've been really, really uh, pumped lately. I mean, we're getting uh, some emails. I got an email from a guy named Trent, who I think, he, he seemed to think he's our first listener from New Zealand, which is cool. Uh, I don't know much about New Zealand, except they have a lot of sheep. I know, I know what not to say to New Zealanders, like that they're Australian. Yeah, don't <laughs> I do say know that. that. I do know that. Don't say that. Um, they don't like that. No. Um, they also don't like any references to sheep. So I don't know if like mm. like the sheep thing will that, be. That might. Yeah. Sorry, Trent. So, uh, he did say he likes our accents. <laughs> so thanks we, for listening. I do like when people tell me I have an accent, though. I know because so I don't feel like, like I have an accent. No, because I sound. I think I sound like everyone else. Yeah, in the world. everyone else has accents. Exactly. We don't. I do not have an accent. I know. Um, so we're going to start off today. Um, we want to get to our guest, uh, but we want to start off today. Normally, we just kind of start off and ask, uh, you know, how was your week? What did you do this week? Uh, but we wanted to actually talk about a, a really key event that happened in the last week, and that was when Chris and Nate watched Moana together. Yes, we did. We watched Moana. For those of you who don't know Moana, it is the most one of the most recent uh, Disney cartoons. It's on Netflix. It was a great evening. You it was a great a, evening. You made me a pizza. I did make you pizza. There homemade some, pizza. Some snacks. There was. Which was some homemade dip. Yep. And we watched, uh, you know, a cartoon movie. Yep. That's just what Cut happened. Cut it up on the couch. Well, that part wasn't true. Um, well, cuddled up on the couch, but you, we should tell our audience. We were with our wives. With our what? Yeah. And, so our wives and your children. And my children, <laughs> yes. So we watched Moana with my kids. Um, and uh, But the reason we wanted to kind of talk about it isn't just so that you can get the visual of Chris and Nate cuddled up on the couch watching Moana. It was a great with nap. The popcorn. <laughs> 
<laughs> nice. Um, one of the things that we try to do here at Rebel Alliance is help you engage culture with the biblical worldview. So when we watched Moana, uh, we thought that we could bring Moana in uh, to the, a game we like to play called Spot the Lie. And uh, if you're listening to the Rebels for the first time, uh, Spot the Lie is just one of the things that as we look to engage culture with the biblical worldview, we think we ought to look discerningly at some of the stuff that culture is trying to teach us. So this is a game that we used to play when I was a kid. My parents used to pause a movie or mute the TV after a commercial and ask us to spot the lie in the worldview that's in front of us. Uh, if you go back on Facebook, uh, some of our old videos, we did the spot the lie in, in Frozen and, uh, and we're looking to, to maybe start a segment that's spotting the lie in commercials and stuff. So Moana. Let's talk about the lie in Moana. And, but before we do that, let's talk about what we liked about Moana. So again, we're, we're helping you to engage culture so you can pick some of these things out in movies that you see. And, and importantly, for some of the parents who are out there, just helping parent your kids um, by teaching them some of the things. So what did you notice in Moana that was, that was good, Chris? Well, first off, it's, it's actually quite an enjoyable movie to It watch. is a good movie. So before, the music is great. The music's great. It's actually quite fun to watch. So when we when we rip on these movies, we're not saying, like, burn copies yeah, yeah. outside no. or anything. No, no. Don't watch it. Just watch it with open eyes. That's all, all we're actually there saying. What I really liked is one of my guilty pleasure actors is in the movie, The Rock, and he is hilarious. He is hilarious, yeah. And the other thing I, I really liked about the movie, now I didn't know this going in, I knew nothing about the movie, so you told me this as we were watching it, is that all of the actors and all of the people in the movie are all like basically native Samoans yeah. and Hawaiians, I think? Is Polynesians. That? Polynesians, yeah, 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 okay. Yeah. Sorry, my, my, yep. I didn't know what, where it was from. But that they, that they didn't try to just cast, you know, a ton of Hollywood right. people Angelina to fill Jolie the wasn't playing the little native girl. Brad, Brad Pitt <laughs> is not playing one of the children. Yeah. Like, they just got people yeah. from the area to, to, be, like, to be in the movie yeah. and be authentic. There's that uh -huh. word again. In, yeah. in the movie, right? And which is one thing I, I really, really actually enjoyed about the movie. Um, and two, I, I enjoyed it. it was, and they tried it was to fun. actually incorporate the mythology from, um, from that people group um, into the movie, which is where we'll, we'll get into some of the, the stuff that uh, is worth talking to your kids about if you're watching the movie. Um, the other thing that's worth talking about, honestly, I mean, let's get down to the story. Spoiler alert, but... Uh, in this story, Moana, the main character, is is a, essentially a chosen one, right? Be, because of their mythology, they, they think that there was a great evil that was unleashed on the world and that darkness and evil is kind of creeping throughout the world, spreading around the entire world. And so the there's a chosen one who has to go and reverse the curse and, and set the world right. And she's kind of the, the, the chosen one. And she has to leave her island and leave her home and leave her family to go and accomplish this work to save the world. And so immediately from there, hey, let's talk about the gospel. Let's talk about Jesus who left his heavenly dwelling, who left his home to come into earth as the chosen one who it was sent into the world to save the world from evil, from sin, and to reverse the curse that befell man because of Adam and Eve's disobedience in the garden. So there's parallels there, right? There's Absolutely. parallels there uh, within the movie that are definitely worth talking about. And point those things out to your kids so that they see um, some of the, 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 the pieces of the gospel that are displayed in movies like this. And in hero stories, you can, you can usually find something like that. Uh, but let's get to the lies. Let's get to the lies. So I think there's, there's obviously, there's a couple things that are, are worth pointing out to your kids. 
um, there's this this movie is is full of kind of polytheism, right? Lots of uh, lots of uh, different gods. Uh, there's a god of the ocean. There's a god of the island. There's the the lava demon or whatever yeah, that thing demon, was at the, at the demon god in the under the sea right <laughs> under the sea yeah i think you're mixing in little mermaid there um so there's obviously we watched that too. <laughs> there's obviously a sort of pantheism where it it personifies and deifies all these different things the the ocean and the waves and and all this kind of stuff it, it, it they personify these things and even deify these things so that they become they become the god um, so that's uh, that's definitely one of the lies that's worth spotting. Is there anything else you picked out? Yeah, one, one of the things I was uncomfortable yep. with, with the movie is that the basic premise of how evil entered the world is that the the one character, his name escapes me at the Maui. moment. Maui. Maui, Maui. That's the, the Rock's rock. character. Yeah. Is a god that actually created, like, that entered into humanity. We, that That's happened. We know this. But then has purpo- like purposely by accident created evil. Right. And it's like, well, no, like, like, and the lie there that's dangerous is that, you know, it tells a story of what God is like, because anything that a a movie can, can skew what people, what think people think a God is like, and that's not what happened. Yeah. And even just that, that whole idea of like, this was seemed like an honest mistake, right? When we know that Adam and Eve, it wasn't an honest mistake. It was willful disobedience, right? And so it kind of, it kind of, uh, blurs the line between sin and wrongdoing and kind of honest you know good good intentioned mistakes so i think that's that's definitely a big one as well yeah Yeah. that's a big one so it's uh anyway it's a good movie it's worth watching but watch it with your eyes open uh, as we said and uh and try to spot the lie and this is just uh we we say these things to you even if you don't have kids it's worth knowing because maybe you like chris and i really enjoyed moana (laughs) and so it'll help you watch it but hopefully this just trains you so that when you're watching things um, you can see the good, the truth in it, what, what points us back to God and us being created in his image, and, and also what are the lies that, that would um, plant the seeds of an, a non-biblical worldview. Yeah, absolutely. So there you go. Watch Moana, sing along to Moana, uh, but recognize the lies in it. Too, too bad I didn't know the song. I just started singing it right now like you did with Frozen. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Did I? I didn't sing that. I didn't sing I did. Oh, yeah. um, okay, so... Uh, we're pretty pumped about this. Um, we, uh, for those of you who who are regular listeners, last week we started to interact with a uh, a podcast episode by our friends, the Two Thieves Podcast, who uh, who put an episode out on their biblical view of cessationism. So cessationism is just that belief that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit have ceased, and uh, and we said that we were going to respond to them. And, uh, and what we didn't tell you or them <laughs> is that we had already landed a big fish. And so today's episode, we get to talk to Dr. Sam Storms, who is an author and a pastor who I absolutely love. And, uh, and w- one of my favorite books of him is actually the book uh, One Thing. Uh, he's got another great one, which is the first book I ever read of his, his called uh, The Pleasures of God pleasure forevermore sorry and uh, and he's just been so so life-giving to me uh, some of his books but his most recent book is actually a book called uh, practicing the power and the tagline is welcoming the gifts of the Holy Spirit in your life and so Sam Storms is a reformed Calvinistic complementarian uh, pastor 
who is also a continuationist. And so we're going to actually talk to him and interact with some of the uh, some of the points put forward by the two thieves and and by cessationists at large, because we know there's there's lots within our reformed uh, tent who would hold the cessationism, and uh, and we want to put forward a biblical case for continuationism, and we're so honored to have Dr. Sam Storms here to help us do that. So, uh, anything you want to say before we bring him on? No, I'm just I'm just buzzing that we have Sam Storms here to talk about this. I I know that it it's it's hard sometimes to to find somebody who is openly charismatic, but also openly Calvinistic. And yep. so Sam Storms finds a way to blend those two things magically together. And I've, I <laughs> in love him. In a beautiful, him. wonderful in, way. In a beautiful and wonderful way. Um, he brings it all together, but he does it because he sees it in scripture. And if you, and if you guys haven't read his books or if you want to read his books, Nate's given you some of them, uh, but you can also find them on Desiring God. And his own ministry is enjoyinggodministries.com. Uh, exactly. So you so. can find him and he's a prof- prolific blogger on there and he lays out these, these cases quite often on, on that. And I just, I, I just eat those things up. So, um, love to have him. Can't wait to get him. All right. Go, so get him going. So without further, further ado, <laughs> here's Dr. Sam Storms. Well, we are on here with Dr. Sam Storms, and uh, Dr. Sam Storms, I, I just want to say thanks so much for being on here. It's a it's a it's a pleasure, and uh, and as I said to you before we started recording, uh, your ministry and your books and your teaching have been instrumental in my own uh, pastoral ministry. So just thanks so much for all that you're doing. Well, you're very welcome. That's uh, humbling and encouraging to hear. So thank you. We're very very excited to have you on, and uh, and very excited to have you on for a, a bunch of reasons. Here at Rebel Alliance, sometimes joke around that we feel like we're a little bit of a, a hodgepodge of a few different um, theological perspectives, and certainly within the Reformed community that seems to be growing uh, recently because of uh, teachers like yourself and John Piper and Matt Chandler and some of these um, these notable, wonderful teachers that uh, are are kind of influencing a younger generation of, uh, of theologically minded Christians. Uh, I do find myself a little isolated as a as a reformed charismatic, and I know uh, on your uh, website you describe yourself as a uh, Calvinistic complementarian continuationist. So t- tell me a little bit about that, and whether or not you feel as lonely as we do sometimes. <laughs> well, the answer to the question is yes. Sometimes I do, although. I think you would be encouraged to know that there are probably more uh, like us than you can imagine. It's just that they are, they're not necessarily very vocal or visible. Uh, and there's no formal denomination as it were, or even network of uh, churches where they would be identified. But um, I hear from a lot of them and they are individuals who, who just quite simply take the scripture. And again, I'm not in saying this, I don't want you to think that I'm suggesting that those who disagree with us don't take the scripture seriously, but they just take the word of God very seriously. And they are committed to uh, embracing and following its teachings, even if it puts them outside of the mainstream um, of uh, some particular denomination or network of believers. So I often say to people who find the notion of a Calvinistic charismatic to be a contradiction in terms that it was um, the man who wrote Romans 9 also said, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. And that kind of jolts people when they stop and pause. Well, yeah, okay, Paul was very Reformed, very Calvinistic, had a high view of God's sovereignty. 
and yet also was very committed to exercising his spiritual gift of tongues and m- multiple other spiritual gifts. So again, I, it is a somewhat of an isolating reality because usually those who are within the Reformed camp are highly suspicious of those in the continuationist or charismatic camp. And I understand why. You know, the charismatic subculture has created an image that is not very attractive or pleasing. And uh, we all know examples of those fanatics and prosperity gospel preachers who have distorted the truth of God's word. And so there are many who just feel this resistance to moving in that direction because they don't want to be tarred with that brush. And then there are those in the charismatic or continuationist world who are uh, rock solid in their uh, gospel centrality, who are persuaded, I think wrongly, that embracing the sovereignty of God is going to undercut their prayer lives. It's going to throw a, a wet blanket over their evangelistic zeal. Somehow it you know, diminishes human responsibility. So you have both sides with their fears. On one side, they're afraid of a, uh, of a, of a mindless fanaticism, and those on the other side are afraid of a pharisaical legalism. And to actually work to embrace both of these truths that the Word of God gives us and actually build a local church, for example, on the foundation of that is very, it's very difficult. We were talking about it the other day in our staff meeting. I told our, our team, I said, you all have to realize this is really hard. And most pastors give up. They don't press through. They don't fight for it. They, they finally come to the point where they say, look, this is just too demanding I'm going to lose too many people, too many big givers. I'm going to offend too many. It's just too hard. Human nature just tends to gravitate to one of the other extremes, but to hold them both together as the Bible does is such a challenge that many just say, you know, it's just not worth the fight. And that's sad. It is is sad. So there's a, a million questions swirling around my head right now. I'll try to take them one at a time. But before we get too far along, um, why don't we just, so we're not losing any of the listeners here, why don't we just define some terms here? Um, how would you define continuationism in your view? And and are you comfortable with the term uh, charismatic or how do those two terms kind of uh, differ in your mind? Well, a continuationist, as the word suggests, is somebody who believes that all the spiritual gifts described in the New Testament, especially 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, 1 Peter chapter 4, Romans chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4, are still operative and valid and that God has provided them for us to make use of and just for our local ministries for building up the body. So we don't believe that any of the gifts of the Spirit ceased or died out when the apostles died. They are still operative, still functional, and to be, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 1, earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. I think the reason why the word continuationist has come into popularity is because of the broader connotations of the word charismatic. So people ask me if I'm charismatic, and I say, well, tell me how you define the term, and then I'll tell you if I'm one. Because that word refers to anybody on this spectrum, from Benny Hinn on one end to Gordon Fee, Wayne Grudem, John Piper, and myself on the other. And then, of course, there's everything in between. So the word charismatic has some baggage, cultural baggage, images of what people see when they turn on the television. There's a, you know, a a rather unusual looking individual really manipulating people and trying to build up his bank account by selling all sorts of miracle spring water or prayer cloths or whatever it is. So 
you've got that kind of that cultural mindset that goes with the word charismatic that causes some people to kind of throw up their hands. I don't mind the term, given the fact that it is based upon uh, the Greek word for gift, charisma. But if continuationist works for most people, I'm happy to stick with that. Just so that we're really specific, when you say that you're a continuationist and you define that as somebody who believes that the gifts of the Holy Spirit described in the New Testament have continued, we're not just talking about the, the gifts like administration or teaching, but we're talking about the supernatural gifts. We're talking about gifts of healing, prophecy, and tongues. You believe all of those are continuing. Absolutely. Typically, the test for somebody, whether they're a continuationist or not, is what they believe about the nine gifts of 1 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. Things like faith, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, tongues, interpretation, prophecy, discerning of spirits, miracles, and gifts of healings. So those are kind of the standard by which you determine whether somebody should will embrace that uh, particular view or not. But again, this is part of the problem. Some people then tend to focus exclusively on those gifts, and they don't realize that there are equally valid, equally spirit-empowered gifts like teaching, administration, mercy, evangelism, giving, gifts which are absolutely essential to the body of Christ. Right. One of the criticisms I often hear about uh, a continuationist point of view is that the gifts have somehow been altered at the cross. So gifts like prophecy, which looked in the Old Testament perhaps different than they do now, were these supernatural gifts changed at all at the cross? Does prophecy look the same now as it did prior to Christ's death and resurrection? Yeah, that's a question I get quite a bit. The only way to answer that question is by actually looking at how the New Testament portrays the gift of prophecy. How was it utilized? What was the response to it? So as you know, in the Old Testament, if a prophet spoke and what he said didn't come to pass, he could be subject to being stoned. We don't find that in the New Testament. We don't find that kind of uh, response. So for example, I read Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, where inciting the prophecy of Joel, Peter indicates that the gift of the Spirit is now, in a sense, democratized. It extends to all flesh, male and female, young and old, masters and maidservants, the whole bit. And he seems to be saying that this is characteristic of this new age, the age of the new covenant in which we live. And so, for example, if somebody says to me, well, wait a minute, if somebody has a legitimate gift of prophecy, are they not speaking forth the thus saith the Lord infallible words that carry the weight of scripture authority with them? And I say, not necessarily, because let's look at how it's portrayed in the New Testament. You have Peter describing young and old men and women together prophesying. Now, my question is, where are those prophecies? If these are scripture quality words that bear the same level of authority, why do we not have any of them? Why was there no effort to retain them uh, in the early church? What do we do, for example, about Acts 21 and the four daughters of Philip, all of whom were said to be prophetesses? Are we being asked to believe that they spoke words that carried the same authority as Isaiah or uh, Ezekiel or Elijah? I don't think so. And then there's the fact that in the New Testament, we're told to judge or evaluate or weigh prophetic words to hold fast to what is good, what is determined to be of God, and to reject that which isn't. So to me, that's a different uh, standard from what we find in the Old Testament. So just in terms of 
looking at how prophecy functioned in the New Testament. And we have, think, for example, of uh, Paul's exhortation. I quoted it a moment ago, 1 Corinthians 14, 1. Earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And he even speaks in chapter 14 of the potential for anyone and even everyone to prophesy at some time or another. Are we to believe that every single individual in the church at Corinth and every single individual in the church at Rome and in Philippi and Colossae and all the churches throughout the ancient world in which there were hundreds, if not thousands of people who were prophesying that each and every one of them was speaking forth scripture quality words of absolute authority? And I say, if that's the case, would Paul really have exhorted everyone to desire to prophesy? And where are these prophecies? They simply don't exist. They were designed to edify the people in local congregations, and they were subject to interpretation and evaluation. So I I just see a different practice in the New Testament from that of the Old Testament uh, that indicates to me that given what I call, again, the democratization of the Spirit, who doesn't just come upon certain individuals for a short period of time, but is given to all Christians, it seems to me that we have a different function of the prophetic gift. So uh, I, I don't think it's the same as the old, it's what we see in the old covenant. I, I just think the New Testament gives us a different scenario. Right. Okay, so you, you kind of jumped into this a little bit. Um, you talked about all the places in the New Testament where uh, the, the regular laity of the church were uh, exercising gifts of prophecy or encouraged to exercise gifts of prophecy. Because one of the main objections to a continuationist viewpoint is the uh, assertion that these gifts were revelatory gifts to confirm the apostles. So the apostles were the ones exercising these gifts, and once the apostles died out, these gifts kind of ceased with them. You've kind of touched on that already, but is there anything else you want to say just just to kind of um, quash that a little bit? Oh, sure. Absolutely. The simple fact is that that's not what the New Testament says. (laughs) When you look at where prophecy is mentioned, you have prophets in Thessalonica, average Christians, Let's never forget that Paul's exhortation in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 was to average Christians, not apostles. He's talking to church members in Corinth. Romans chapter 12, he talks about the gift of prophecy being operative. Uh, We know it was operative in Ephesus because of what Paul says in 1 Timothy about the operation of the gift. Uh, You know, read in Acts 29, there were disciples in Tyre. Uh, We know that there were people exercising prophetic gifts throughout the whole range of the ancient world in every conceivable church. So far more than just apostles prophesied, there's not one syllable in scripture that suggests that only apostles prophesied. In fact, I've got probably at least a dozen or more texts that say quite literally the opposite. Now, did apostles prophesy? Absolutely. Ephesians 2.20, the apostles and prophets that spoke and established the foundation of the universal church, giving those vital, infallible, universally applicable biblical and theological truths. No argument there. But there's no reason to conclude that Ephesians 2.20 is describing all prophetic ministry. We know it isn't because of Paul's experience in Acts 21, the four daughters of Philip. Uh, did, Did the four daughters of Philip speak into the foundational universal truths of the body of Christ? Hardly. You have, again, prophetic ministry uh, scattered throughout the New Testament in virtually every church. 
And so it just doesn't bear up under scrutiny to say that only apostles prophesied and the only purpose of prophecy was somehow to bear witness to their authenticity. Paul says very clearly that prophecy is given, 1 Corinthians 14, 3, for encouragement, edification, and consolation of all Christians in a local church. And I think the the confusion of terms is maybe one of the things that causes some people to embrace a cessationist perspective on the scriptures, and that is to to assume that every time they're, they think of prophecy, to uh, relate that to scripture. And so you, you've kind of laid out that there are all these, uh, all these prophecies going on in the early church that didn't obviously make their way into scripture. So what should, as, as continuationists who are now going to slowly start to work our way through, what does it mean that prophecy continues, but that prophecy doesn't add to scripture? How do you reconcile this idea that we have a closed canon and yet a, a revelatory gift like prophecy is still in operation in the church today? Well, one thing to remember, it's very instructive at the end of chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. Paul says, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. And if you don't recognize this, then you aren't recognized. And then he says, earnestly desire to prophesy. So he's recognizing there are prophets in the church at Corinth. But he says, look, if you claim to be a prophet and you're speaking the word of the Lord, remember that I am an apostle and I am writing canonical scripture. You aren't. Part of the problem here is, is this word revelation. Because when most evangelicals hear the word revelation, they put it in all caps with an exclamation point, And they think that means this book, the, the canonical revelation of scripture. But the fact of the matter is the word is used in other places simply to refer to a disclosure where God brings something spontaneously to mind. Uh, Paul talks about it in Philippians 3. Uh, he talks about it in 1 Corinthians 14. There are other passages in which the, the, the word is used in a non-technical sense of simply a divine disclosure of some truth. But we know that these revelatory words are not equal to the authority of Scripture simply because God, by his providential design, did not include them in Scripture. As you said, the canon is closed. There are no additional words that need to be slipped in behind the book of Revelation. I think it's important also to remember, I believe that any legitimate prophecy has three elements. There's the revelation, the interpretation, and the application. The revelation comes from God. It is infallible. God doesn't speak error. But we oftentimes misinterpret what God has revealed. I mean, think about how many people misinterpret the revelation they have right in front of them in Scripture. But simply because we don't always interpret this revelation correctly doesn't mean we throw it out and say that it's of no value. So once we interpret a revelatory word, then we apply it. We say, all right, this is how it should affect our lives and change our behavior and give us direction or guidance. So it's only the revelation in which there is a guarantee of infallibility. But we are fallen humans. We don't always interpret what God has said accurately. We mistakenly look at it and draw conclusions that are not necessarily bound up in the revelatory word itself. And then we misapply it. So keeping in mind that it's just this threefold elements in prophecy, I think, is a very helpful tool for people. So, again, I don't see any inconsistency whatsoever in affirming that God's final revelatory word that is binding on the conscience of all Christians in every age. It's found in this book, the Bible. I don't find any inconsistency in affirming that 
And yet a saying at the same time, God continues to speak to his people. He continues to minister to them through revelatory gifts. And we have to evaluate and judge them by the standard of this book. And if they are found to be consistent with it, if they encourage, build up and edify, then we embrace them as having come from God. But we don't conclude that, oh, well, because I got a revelatory word in Oklahoma City in 2017, that that applies universally to the body of Christ throughout the earth for all ages. That's just simply not how the prophetic gift operates. That's, that's really good. I appreciate that. So I think that's really, really helpful. In terms of practice, as New Testament Christians with a continuationist perspective on the scriptures, if we feel as though the Holy Spirit is impressing something upon our hearts, what sort of language should we use and what sort of language shouldn't we use? What's helpful for the edification of the body? And I'm just thinking of many churches where pastors will stand up and say, this is what God's saying. This is what God has spoken to me and the language we use. Yeah, in my book, Practicing the Power, I actually have a whole chapter talking about guidelines for delivery of what we think are prophetic words. I think we should avoid saying, thus saith the Lord. I tell people, don't ever stand up and say, hey, this is God's will for your life, or God told me to tell you. I think those are emotionally charged statements that need to be avoided. So what we do is somebody will say, I have a sense that I think may be from the Lord, but I'll leave it to you all to decide whether or not I've really heard from him. Or I have an impression on my heart that the Spirit may be suggesting this. So my recommendation in our practice here is that we want to deliver prophetic words that obviously communicate our belief that we could be mistaken, that we are not claiming uh, infallibility in our utterances, that we're saying we have a sense, we have an impression, we feel a prompting from the Lord. We believe God has brought something to mind, but we always present it with an open hand and say, this is for the body of Christ to evaluate, to judge. If it's for a specific person, we say, you know, you tell me, does this resonate with your heart? Does this make sense to you in terms of your experience? So I think if we'll just kind of dial it down and demystify the prophetic and stop thinking that somehow we have to hold up our Bible and a closed fist with the other hand and in a deep and and yet very loud voice, you know, uh, bellow out that uh, the word of God now says to you or God's told me to tell you that this is his will for your life. That's the kind of approach to the prophetic that brings disparagement and criticism, and rightly so. It's not helpful at all. Yeah. And just to kind of uh, wrap that part off, I I feel like we could talk about that one pastor to another for a really long time. Um, Yeah. But I I think it is really uh, important for us to make sure that those who would call themselves cessationists who might be listening in on this podcast and listening to what you're saying recognize that poor governance is not a good reason to believe in cessationism. Yeah, that's right. Abuse is never an excuse for disuse. That's good. Sweet sounding phrase. Yeah. You know, the the Corinthians were abusing gifts. They were making them badges of spirituality. Certain gifts were dominating the public gathering of the assembly. Paul didn't write and say, all right, time out, Corinthians. You all need to put the brakes on gifts. Gifts are the problem. Put them on the shelf. Stop this. Write it into your bylaws that this will never be permitted in our church again. It's not what he did. To a church that was obviously in error, Paul said, 
earnestly desire spiritual gifts. I want you to desire them even more. I just want you to do it right. And so here are the guidelines. Here are the principles that are to govern your use of the gifts. So, you know, he even comes to the end of that chapter. It's almost like he wants to put one more nail in this plank. And he says, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues. Because he knew that there were some who had been so offended by what had happened that they basically wanted to completely obliterate the exercise of gifts altogether. I think that's why Paul had to say to the Thessalonians in chapter 5 of his first letter, do not quench the spirit by despising prophetic utterances. They had probably seen the same abuses and errors that we see today, and they were kind of saying to one another, you know, this isn't working. Let's marginalize these gifts. Let's issue an amendment in our bylaws that prohibits the exercise of prophetic gifts altogether. And Paul says, no, you can't do that. That's quenching the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. But then he says, judge everything. In other words, he's not saying, hey, carte blanche, anything goes. He says, judge, evaluate, assess, hold to that which is good, reject that which is evil. Now, you brought up tongues, and I I do want to spend a little bit of time asking you about that, because the truth is, I grew up in a charismatic church. Uh, We were encouraged at a very young age to just uh, get baptized in the Holy Spirit and, and begin speaking whatever gibberish came to our minds. And, uh, and when I got reformed in my soteriology, I just rejected it all. And, and I was quite convinced that tongues was at a particular time, at a particular place, kind of the Acts 2, people speaking in their own native language idea. And, and it was you, despite my experience, it was you actually who changed my mind on tongues. I, I don't want to say you go further with it, but certainly among even continuationists, your view that tongues is a, can be a personal prayer language uh, might be mm-hmm. a little unique. So can you, can you talk to us a little bit about that? And just to kind of give you a heads up, our Convergence Conference, which is being held here in Oklahoma City, October 5th through the 7th, my second message is going to be on tongues. And probably about a week or two after the conference, that'll be online. It'll be at our church website. And people want to go more deeply into this. Uh, I'll address most of those issues in that message. Yeah, there are a lot of reasons why people are resistant to tongues, because it, it, it seems, looks, sounds weird. And then I think there are a lot of misconceptions. For example, I think it's a great misconception to think that all tongues were actual human languages previously unknown to the speaker. I think that was true in Acts 2. You're exactly right to point to Acts 2. But I don't see that bearing out in any other context. Some say, oh, tongues were just evangelistic. Well, the problem is that you don't find tongues functioning evangelistically anywhere else in the book of Acts. Not in Acts 10, not in Acts 19, certainly not in 1 Corinthians 14. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 that when I pray with the Spirit or sing with the Spirit, I'm giving thanks to God. He said tongues is speaking not to men, but to God. So it's a form of prayer. Honestly, I think probably the greatest objection and obstacle that evangelicals have is due to something that I would say is is a strength in the evangelical world, and that is the importance of the mind, the importance of cognitive understanding. In fact, Paul says that's why you can't use uninterpreted tongues in the corporate assembly, because only that which is intelligible edifies others. So people then draw this conclusion. They say, oh, well, if what is intelligible is the only thing that is of spiritual value, since uninterpreted tongues are unintelligible, we have to banish them. And yet that's not the conclusion Paul draws. In 1 Corinthians 14, beginning with verse 14, Paul says, 
when I pray in the spirit, my mind is unfruitful. In other words, he says, when I pray in tongues, I don't know what I'm saying. Other people don't know what I'm saying. Unless, of course, there's an interpreter. And he said, so what am I going to do with that? Well, we immediately say, stop praying in the spirit because your mind's not engaged. It's not bearing fruit. Other people don't understand what you're saying. So just stop it, Paul. That's not what he says. He says, so what is the outcome? I will pray with the spirit and I'll pray with my mind so that others can understand. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with my mind. So his point is that it's possible for the spirit of God to communicate with the human spirit in a way that builds up, strengthens, and edifies us that is not necessarily processed through the cerebral cortex of the brain. In other words, yes, the mind is absolutely central to Christian living, but that doesn't mean the spirit of God cannot minister to us through an expression of a gift that in a sense leaves the mind unfruitful. And again, the evangelical says, oh, that's a bunch of nonsense. I mean, I, it has to be cognitively grasped. We have to understand what we're saying in prayer for it to be of any benefit. I think Paul's saying, no. You know, Paul goes on to say, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. And then he says, but in the corporate assembly, when there are other people around, I would rather speak five words that people can understand. In other words, in the vernacular than 10,000 words in a tongue. But then that raises a real question. So where was he speaking in if, tongues? Exactly, exactly. If he speaks in tongues more than all the tongue-happy Corinthians combined, but he virtually never does it in the corporate assembly and certainly won't in the absence of interpretation, where is he doing it? I think Paul is saying, this is my private prayer practice. This is what happens you know, in my closet, as it were, behind closed doors. He says, I pray in the Spirit and I sing in the Spirit on a regular basis because, as he said earlier, it builds me up. Now, if somebody pushes back and say, whoa, 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 I thought the purpose of gifts was to build up others. It is. Paul is saying, I am built up, but that is not as an end in itself. I'm built up so that I can be a more mature, a more discerning, a more Christ-like Christian who in turn then can edify others. So all our spiritual gifts edify the one who exercises them. I'm sure you have the gift of teaching as a pastor. So do I. I'm edified and built up every time I preach the word of God. Does that mean I'm in sin? Of course not. Hopefully I'm being built up so that I in turn can be better equipped and more able to build up others. That's awesome. I so appreciate that, Dr. Storm. So one other miraculous gift that often uh, kind of gets uh, attacked by cessationists would be gifts of healing. And so I want to ask this question, and, and maybe you can tie all, the, all these miraculous gifts in together as you answer it. Um, one of the criticisms of, of kind of the gift of healing, I guess, would be you mentioned certain televangelists or people on TV who claim to have this gift and then distribute it of their own free will. So when we're talking about whether it's the gift of healing or these other gifts, is this a gift we get once and for all and then it operates at our own free will? Or are these gifts that are brought upon by the Spirit and, and lifted by the Spirit at the same time? You've read my book, so you probably have heard what I'm getting ready to yes, say. exactly. It, I'm setting you up. It really disturbs my charismatic friends. There never has been and never will be anything called the gift of healing. It's never mentioned in the New Testament. 
what the New Testament talks about are gifts, plural, of healings, plural. It's a very unique construction in 1 Corinthians 12. And I think what Paul is saying is that when it is God's desire to heal somebody, he will grant a particular gift, a charisma, to a particular individual for the healing of a particular disease. But that doesn't mean that that person who received that particular gift can therefore heal anyone at any time, anywhere. People have this notion that the gift of healing was like, for example, the gift of teaching. You can wake me up at two in the morning out of a dead sleep and I'll start teaching. I mean, it's, it's subject to my will. It's residential, as it were. It resides in me. It's a permanent gift of the Spirit. I think my wife has the gift of mercy. She doesn't need any prompting. She can be merciful and serve others at the drop of a hat. Not so with gifts, in my opinion, like prophecy, word of knowledge, healing, miracles. I think all of these are subject to the sovereignty of God. Let me just give you an example that, may, that might make sense of this. When I invite people at our church to come forward to pray for the sick, if somebody says, you know, raises their hand, I don't have the gift of healing, so I'm not going to come up and pray for the sick. And my response is, how do you know? How do you know that when you come and you cry out to God that he might not actually bestow a gift for the healing of that particular individual for whom you're praying? So healing gifts are what I call circumstantial and occasional. They're subject to God's will, not ours. It's not a gift that you have in your back pocket that you can pull out and heal at any time, any disease. Not even Paul had that power. So healing gifts are dependent upon the sovereignty of God, his timing, his purpose, his will for that particular person. So again, to give somebody an example, if somebody comes to me, let's say they have a severe arthritic hands and they, they're, they're, I mean, they're just knotted up and they're suffering from severe rheumatoid arthritis. And I pray for that person to be healed. And God in his sovereign mercy chooses to grant me a gift, a charisma for the healing of that particular person, of that particular affliction. And we watch it happen. We say, wow, praise God. And then somebody else comes up and say, hey, I've got arthritis in my hands too. Would you pray for me? And I pray for them and nothing happens. Why? Because God didn't grant me a gift for the healing of that particular individual. It was only a gift for the healing of the other individual. So this idea that cessationists have, and they throw it in my face all the time, Oh, if the gift of healing is still operative today, why are you wasting time in your office? Go down to the local hospital and empty, empty the cancer ward. Well, that betrays a complete ignorance of the nature of healing gifts in the New Testament. Paul couldn't heal Trophimus. He couldn't heal Timothy. He couldn't heal himself. Couldn't even heal Epaphroditus. God finally healed Epaphroditus. Why? Didn't he not operate in that particular gifting? Well, he did when it was God's will, when it was God's timing and purpose. But it wasn't like teaching or evangelism or mercy or administration, gifts that are more permanent and residential within us. So I think gifts like prophecy, for example, I've prophesied accurately, maybe, I don't know, maybe 15 times in the 30 years that I've been operating in these things. That doesn't make me a prophet. <laughs> Somebody says, Sam, do you have the spiritual gift of prophecy? I say, I have on occasion, but I don't right now. Words of knowledge, the same way. Gift of miracles. I think most of those gifts are ones that 
Now, the gift of tongues is different. I could start praying in tongues right now. I won't, but I could. It's subject to my will. But I can't give you a word of knowledge right now unless God sovereignly chooses to reveal something to you that I then communicate in merely human words. So we have to recognize this, I think, a vitally important distinction between gifts that function occasionally, circumstantially, subject to God's purpose and his will, and gifts that reside permanently within us that are subject to our yeah. will. And just for any of our listeners who might think that you're uh, you're drawing these distinctions just on maybe what sounds good, I would just push them to your book, Practicing the Power, where you kind of get into um, the very uh, sound biblical uh, exegesis that makes you believe these distinctions. So for the purposes of the podcast, I know you can't get into all the Greek terms, but uh, I, I know that you've done a lot of work on this, and uh, uh, we appreciate that work. Oh, you're welcome. I guess uh, I don't want to take up all your time. Uh, I feel like I could talk to you all day, but I'm sure you have other important things to do. So uh, uh, what I would like to ask, I guess, is confession time. <laughs> I'm uh, Calvinistic, charismatic. Uh, I wholeheartedly believe in uh, the continued operation of the spiritual gifts. Uh, but I pastor a church where it's much easier to be practicing cessationists, despite yeah. I'm a uh, I'm a continuationist by conviction. So just talk for a little bit about maybe those of us who are uh, continuationists. This is where we see the scriptures teaching, and yet we recognize it's maybe easier <laughs> just to not deal with them, or. It seems like an awful lot of work. And you alluded to this right when we started talking. You said, you know, there's a lot of pastors who might uh, look for a cessationist interpretation simply because it's a whole lot easier. They're not going to lose people. There's not going to be weird things going on in their church. Governance uh, will be a whole lot easier if we don't uh, encourage these things. Um, and so uh, despite Paul's very pointed command to the Corinthians, we would say uh, don't earnestly seek spiritual gifts, even though we believe yeah. in them. Um, so maybe just give some advice for those of us who um, are, are convinced by what you're saying, but scared of where it may lead us. Well, I would be less than candid if I didn't say it has the potential to lead you into some troublesome waters. And the reason for that is because there are a lot of broken, needy people in the body of Christ. And they will oftentimes gravitate to churches where they think they can find their identity and value by exercising gifts that they think God has given to them. And so, yeah, you have to be prepared to pastor people who tend to be, and I, and I hope this doesn't sound arrogant or judgmental, but they're a little flaky little eccentric. And as I said, they kind of wrap up their identity in their claim that they're hearing God or that they have a particular gift. That's going to happen. But I don't see anywhere in scripture that that becomes an excuse to deny what God has revealed. Nowhere in the Bible am I told that I am justified in disobeying biblical commands because somebody else did it badly. And I know that any pastor listening to this is probably running through his mind well, I can name you a lot of people who've done it badly, and boy, it created problems. And what happens is we end up creating an 11th commandment. We kind of slip in behind the 10, which goes like this. Thou shalt not do at all what others do badly. And we see others do it badly, and we think, oh, therefore, I won't do it at all. The only way to avoid these kinds of messes and embarrassing moments is we've got to legislate the gifts out of the life of our church, or 
We have to create a service that simply isn't conducive to the exercise of these gifts. You know, what we can only do what's written in the church bulletin, or we'll only do what is prescribed by our particular liturgy. So I understand the fear and the concern. And I would just have to say, ask pastors who, who use that to justify disuse. Can you in conscience justify your disobedience to God's word because of the fear you have that it might create problems for you down the road? So yes, there is a price to pay. There are challenges that have to be met. You have to spend time with people. You have to speak into their lives. Sometimes it's hard and painful, but it is worth it. So I just simply refuse to disobey scripture and those commands because I've seen others abuse gifts or what they claim to be gifts. Just a second word of counsel to pastors and church leaders. You do need to realize that people aren't going to feel the freedom or be encouraged to pursue things that you yourself don't. You have to model for others what it means to be open to the spirit and hungry for these gifts. Uh, You have to be willing to step out in faith. One of the things that I recommend and instruct in the book, Practicing the Power, is developing a really robust prayer ministry and training people in the importance of prayer and being willing to basically to confront, you know, you pray for 100 people and 99 don't have anything happen, but one does. And you have to ask yourself the question, am I willing to endure the disappointment of 99 failures for the sake of the one success. And I am, and let me just say this, you didn't fail in praying for the 99. You only fail if you disobey God's word. Success is measured by our obedience, not by the fruit that it bears. The fruit is up to God. So I think leaders simply need to realize, yeah, there's a price to pay, but I think there is a rich reward for being willing to be obedient to what the New Testament says. And there are practical steps that can be taken. That's what I, that's why I wrote the book, Practicing the Power. I, I would get calls from pastors who said, hey, I agree theologically with you. I'm a continuationist, but I don't know how to do it. What are some practical steps that I can take, some dangers to avoid that will help my church move forward in this? And that's what that book is all about. And I would encourage that that book to any anybody who's really uh, delving into this issue, whether you're a pastor or not, though I found it particularly helpful and convicting, I'll admit, uh, quite convicting. Um, so I would encourage that. I just want to thank you so much for your time, uh, Dr. Storm. Is there anything else that you'd like to recommend to us? Um, any, any other resources or anything that you can, would like to tell us just about what you're doing currently and how we can uh, attach ourselves to some of the teaching that's coming out of Oklahoma City? We're having a national conference next week. I don't know when this podcast is broadcast. It may have already happened by the time that you uh, release this podcast. But we will have those messages online at at our church website at bridgewaychurch.com. That's bridgewaychurch.com. Also, if people want to visit my website, I blog fairly regularly at samstorms.com. Just remember my name. It's easy, samstorms.com. And I will have a notice up when those resources and those messages will be made available. And I have numerous resources available at my website if people will just do a little exploration there that addresses so many of these very subjects. So I would encourage people to take advantage of that. There are a number of books that are helpful. I'm thinking, for example, of Jack Deere's book, Surprised by the Power of the Spirit. Jack's coming to speak at our conference. His book, The Beginner's Guide to the Gift of Prophecy. My book, The Beginner's Guide to Spiritual Gifts, where I cover all the nine gifts of 1 Corinthians 12. 
So these are good, helpful resources that I think people could benefit from. Well, thanks so much for uh, sharing those with us. And thanks for sharing your time with us. We're humbled that uh, you take the time to come on our uh, podcast and just address some of these issues. We couldn't think of anything better. So we kind of got our first choice to come and, uh, and talk to us about this stuff. So thanks so much for your time. And we really, really appreciate what you're doing. Uh, it's been my pleasure. That was fantastic. Yeah, so. that was great. We just, yeah. Thanks so much, Sam Storms. Uh, thank you, doctor, for coming on and sharing with us. We, we are so privileged that men like this take the time totally. to come on and just speak to a couple of hacks like us <laughs> and uh, just expunge so much truth and so much glory in their conversations. Fantastic. Um, if we just we just really want to appreciate him. Now, if, if to our listeners, who we also want to appreciate, if this is the first time you're listening to us right now, um, we just want to say thank you for that. But also, um, if you guys want to go back and listen to some of our old episodes, we've done... A few interviews like this before on episode 27, um, so somewhat recent, we did have uh, Pastor Doug Wilson on. We'd point you back to there because that, that episode really just speaks to a lot about what we're about here at Rebel Alliance. For sure. Um, it's about also, engaging the culture, and that's kind of our big thing. Exactly. And then the other half of our big thing is being really practical. And episode 30, uh, we had a uh, Dr. Joshua Straub from Texas on the podcast, and he uh, really just helped us get practical about how to raise and rear our families in a biblical way. So um, those are just a couple highlighted episodes that you can go back and check out if you liked what you heard today. Um, And we hope you stick with us. And uh, as always, um, Rebels signing off. Have a great one, guys. Take care. You've been listening to the Rebel Alliance podcast, where we equip you to engage culture through a biblical worldview. Please take the time to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Write a review and leave a five-star rating. If you would like to see all of our content, which includes podcast episodes uploaded to iTunes each Wednesday, and short videos about engaging culture released on Facebook each Friday, please visit us online at rebelalliancemedia.com. We love hearing from you, so if you have questions, comments, or would like to suggest episode topics, send us a message on Facebook or email us at info at Thanks for joining us, and you may now consider yourself part of the Rebellion.